I think ground up development though, you know, because it allows us to get in at a lower basis with a new product, low maintenance, it's going to be a really good way for us to build a lot of long-term wealth for, for us at Obsidian and also our investors, depending on where you're at in the market cycle. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to another episode of XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we welcome real estate investor, speaker, and entrepreneur David Tupin. David is a co-founder of Obsidian Capital, an Austin, Texas-based real estate investment and development firm. David's first venture into real estate was a 12-unit apartment complex in Michigan back in 2016. Today, he has acted as a key principal in over $50 million in real estate holdings and has raised north of $10 million in capital. David is a member of the Multifamily Boardroom, an exclusive mastermind group composed of over 30 high-level multifamily owners and operators. And he recently ventured into the tech industry through the founding of Real Estate Lab, a software company built on the back of his multifamily deal analyzer, which you can actually find and download at Obsidian Capital's website. In our interview today, we dive into how David got his start in real estate on the back of strong financial background and underwriting skills. We talk about the key metrics and numbers to look at when evaluating a real estate deal. And we discuss Obsidian Capital's current undertaking a 50-unit garden-style multifamily development that is breaking ground shortly. Thank you for tuning in to XN State. It's a pleasure to have you here. Without further ado, here is today's guest, David Tupin. David, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you today? I'm doing great, Jorge. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome. I'm very excited. I've been following you for a while on Instagram. You do a good job at keeping us updated on there on the, <laughs> with everything that you grew up to. And it's definitely very exciting stuff that you have going on. I appreciate that, man. I certainly try. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start by giving our audience a little bit of context on, on who you are and what you've done and particularly how you got started in into real estate. Absolutely. Yeah. So I started... Well, I'm 24 now. I started when I was 19 turning 20. I grew up in Michigan, a metro Detroit, Southeast Michigan. And I always wanted to get into real estate. So uh, my junior year in college, I had gotten out of some internships in investment banking and consulting. And I got my real estate license. So I started actually just wholesaling and flipping houses for about six months. I did, did like eight or nine deals. And just realized that wasn't really it wasn't really that fun or interesting to me. But I was finishing up my senior year of college as a full-time student still. And I wanted to go into multifamily and apartments, commercial real estate. So I bought my first multifamily property uh, my senior year of college. It was a 12-unit uh, apartment complex. I bought it for about $600,000. Next question that most people ask is, well, how'd you do that? You're in college. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You, you made yeah. it sound so easy. Yeah, um, it wasn't necessarily that easy. I was a broke college student, you know, just struggling to get by like everybody else. And uh, so I, I figured out how to raise capital from investors. And so I networked with people locally that had, you know, some money sitting aside, 25, 50,000, put it together into syndication, raised the capital and bought, and bought that 12 unit. And so 
I did that and I, I did it again. I bought another 12 unit on the same street and then I bought a 96 unit. So I, I had about 120 apartments before I graduated uh, my senior year of college. Wow. How did you get comfortable making those purchases, having ever done it before being only 19, 20 years old? Yeah, I think it's the biggest hurdle for most people that want to get into apartments, multifamily. How do you feel comfortable making an offer and buying a pro- you know these multi-million dollar properties? And and for me, what it came down to was the numbers. Mm-hmm. Because I, you know, I wasn't a I wasn't a pro at that point, but because I spent a lot of time practicing underwriting deals, running financial models in Excel. I built an analyzer that helped me actually underwrite and analyze these deals. And so I spent so much time doing that, that when it came down to it, I mean, I would, I would look at this, this 12 unit and I'd say, okay, my rents are here. My rents are X. I can get them to 1.2 X. You know, I'll bring them up 20%. My expenses are here. I can get my expenses to here by managing it better. My taxes are going to increase. My insurance might go up a little bit and I'm going to, you know, throw on a 70% loan with these are my closing costs. And basically I run that all through this spreadsheet that I had made. And, mm-hmm. and at that point it was like, well, this is really simple. I just look mm-hmm. at the returns that it kicks out. And if it's making good returns and these are realistic ex- assumptions, I should feel comfortable buying this property at this price. And that's what it boiled down to for me was, was knowing the numbers made me comfortable. Okay. It sounds like your internship experiences and came in handy, right? In investment banking, I'm sure you were analyzing a lot there. Oh yeah, they work you, man. I'm where you know, they put you through the ringer eighty hours a week. You're in Excel almost all of that time. So yeah, I definitely got good with numbers from those yeah, internships. That, that makes a ton of sense how being able to dominate and be comfortable with the Excel and with the analyzing aspect of the deal got you in. Yeah. For for a lot of other people I've spoken with, it seems to be a construction background. Like they have a particular background in construction and they're, they see things that the same way you described it, it just makes sense. It's, it's simple. Um, it just makes sense. You're buying this, you're doing this and you're turning it into yeah. this and selling it for this much. So, yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all it really at the end of the day, all real estate comes down to is numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to flip a house. You got to buy it for a hundred, put 25 into it, sell it for 150. I mean, it's a simple example, but that's how you can make, you know, a 20% return on your money, 125,000 spent, 25 made. So same thing when it, when it comes to multifamily, it's how much is it generating in revenue, which comes from rents, other income fees, utility reimbursements, blah, blah, blah. How much are you spending on your taxes, insurance, maintenance, marketing, advertising, utilities? How much are your debt payments? And then what's your cash flow? divided by how much money am I putting into the deal? And then you get your return on your investment. And so if you really think of it in a simple way and you pick up a good uh, financial model or an analyzer, um, Mm -hmm. which I have, I have a free one on my website that anyone listening can check out. It really makes it simple. The thing is that the analyzer is only as good as the, like the inputs you put in, right? It is. And a lot of the the things that you described right there, you are um, familiar with because of your experience and because of the properties that you've mm-hmm. invested in, you know what leasing costs yep. are, what, I mean, marketing utilities exactly. and all, all those costs that you mentioned, sure. you're able to get comfortable with those inputs, but you probably, how did you get comfortable with that in your first property before you had, because for the second one, you can just look at your first one and try to 
transfer Correct. the information into the second one before your first one? How did you jump that hurdle? Yeah. So for the first one, there, there were a lot of things. I wouldn't say a lot, but there's several things that I did miss and that I learned and that I picked up and then added in to look at the next one. So for example, closing costs, every state's different, but some, you know, depending on where you're at, you're, you're going to pay if taxes are paid in advance every year. Let's say I pay taxes in December or sorry, in January of 2020 for all of 2020 taxes. Well, if buyer comes in and they buy the property in June, they've got to reimburse me for taxes I've paid from July through December, right? Mm -hmm. So some states, it's you pay in arrears, which means you pay at the end of the year for that year, in which case the buyer comes in, they actually get credit from the seller instead of having to reimburse the seller. So little things like that, you'll learn when you close, most banks are going to want you to pay a year worth of insurance escrowed up front. So, you know, that I didn't account for. That was another five grand that, okay. you know, I was like, oh man, I missed the mark by five grand there. Just all these little things that, you know, you figure out. One way to get comfortable with that is talk to somebody that has closed these before and say, hey, could I see an example closing statement? And you can see all the costs that typically will come up during a transaction. And in terms of operating expenses and those assumptions, you can go to a local management company. And you could send them, say, hey, I'm looking at this deal. I'm thinking of buying it. What do you think you could manage it for? And they'll tell you for each of those expense categories, they'll make a budget for you. And they'll say, hey, I think, you know, if they think you're a reputable buyer and you're not wasting their time, yeah, they'll go ahead and do that for you for free and they'll give you a look. So financing, how do you know what loan terms? I've got a great video on my YouTube page that explains all of the different loan terms you get from multifamily properties. You can also go and talk to a multifamily loan broker uh, or a lender, and they'll give you a breakdown of the different types of loans and terms you're seeing right now. So mm -hmm. I just utilized all these resources mm -hmm. that I had learned were out there, and that helped make me comfortable yeah. with underwriting deals. A lot of slow research, as you mentioned, videos, podcasts, talking to people, Tons. just things that simply take time. I just put the time in. Yep, exactly. you're right. You, you put the yep. time in. And then you, you also said something I think extremely important, which is for your first deal, at the end of the day, you missed a few things. No, no matter how yeah. much research you would have put into it, it would have been very hard. And to... I thought I was good. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But you probably made some mistakes that for it being your first deal, you had to cover or account for or sort of recover from through even more hours putting in after you had yep. closed on the deal. Totally, totally agree that 100% happened. There's many, many mistakes I made that I learned from and that were just hugely important for me on my path to growing after that deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I still learn things on every deal I do today. I, you know, I've bought north of $50 million in multifamily in the past three years. And I still learn on every deal I do, there's something that comes up. Mm -hmm. So on that one, you know how it, how it went was I missed the mark on some of the closing costs. So my renovation budget and my acquisition fees that I was going to charge, I, I ate into my acquisition fees. I gave that up. So I really didn't make any money there to put that back into the deal. And then I was a little light on my renovation budget. So what I had to do was a couple of the unit turns that came up, I got in there and I painted the unit. And I you know, did, did work on, on the property manually so that I could cover some of those costs. And I would never be able to do that on a 100-unit property. But it was 12 units, so I could jump in there and paint a couple of units and do some work myself, you know, landscaping and whatnot. So 
you know, you live and you learn and you get a little hands on, you get your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. And, and, but that's how you become powerful in this business is by not being afraid mm-hmm. to jump in and realize that you're not going to do everything right. Yeah. And you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Yeah. By betting in your ability to be able to fix those issues when they come up in the future. That's so, it, dude. You yeah. got to make that bet. I mean, that's a bet I make every single day with every project I do. You know, I'm doing a ground up development right now. I've, I've never done one before, but I know, I know we're going to learn and where there's going to be some mistakes made, but, mm-hmm. but there's enough room in the numbers to where it's going to be a great deal though at the end of the mm-hmm. day. So yeah. you just got to take a chance. So you graduated from college, you said with 24 units. Uh, 120. 120 units. Okay. I missed yeah. something there. So on, on how many properties was that? That was three. It was 12, 12, and 96. Okay. And what happened from then on? Or what, what was the next step that you take or that you took? Yeah, next step for me was really, I know I have the ability to do this. I know I have the ability to grow and scale. Um, there's a couple things I was lacking where I couldn't do it on my own. And one was, you know, signing on these larger bank loans. <clears throat> I'm, you know, didn't have the net worth and liquidity or the financial wherewithal to be able to do that yet. So I knew, I, and I had several people lined up that said, hey, I'll sign on loans for you if you find a good deal. That was cool. But I, I was really looking for a business partner that I could grow with and that really we could scale. So I met a guy at a conference. His name's Clayton Gonzalez. He's my current business partner at a city and capital. And he had owned about a $300 million portfolio of apartments in Texas that he had sold and a really intelligent guy. He started as a maintenance man in his twenties and has wow. worked in, yeah. And, and he worked his way up to be the president of the management company and owned the management company, owned a ton of real estate. And so very successful, very smart and, and had sold pretty much all of his portfolio, wanted to grow again. So we met, got along really well and we're like, Hey, let's start obsidian capital together. And so we we're partners in the company And we've bought about 400, almost 500 apartments together so far and a couple new developments in the past year and a half since we started it. So, so that was the next step for me. It's like, I, I have the potential. I have the hustle. I'm willing to work my ass off. If I had a partner that could, he has the net worth and liquidity to be able to get these bigger loans and the experience and can act as, you know, not only is he my business partner, but he's one of my best friends and he is a mentor to me. So and he's, tw- he's twice my age great guy but i knew that would unlock my potential more by having a partner like that yeah it makes complete sense so what was the sort of the what's the business model behind obsidian capital what does obsidian capital do as a company so a majority of what we do is we buy and uh, raise capital from investors to acquire large apartment communities in growing metropolitan areas in the united states primarily texas so you know, 100 plus B and C class apartment complexes that we could go into, fix up, renovate, make a good return for our investors and ourselves in, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, where we're based. I own property in Atlanta. I still looking at Michigan. We're about mm-hmm. to buy a property in Michigan uh, where I grew up. So value add apartment complexes all over. Is there a particular reason why you have zoned in those specific markets that you mentioned? Because you mentioned four in Texas and then Atlanta, Michigan, Indiana as well. Yeah, we do Indianapolis as well. 
these are all markets that I, I know I have contacts in terms of management companies, uh, okay. contractors. I know the type of product. I'm comfortable with it. And we've done research in terms of job growth, population growth. And they're just markets that we've just done, we've done research on and are comfortable investing in. Okay. And how many properties have you acquired with, with Obsidian? How long ago was, was the company formed? About a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago. Okay, so it's, it's pretty new. And have you acquired a property or several by now? Yeah, we've acquired several. So we've bought about 450 apartments, a couple pieces of land as well, which we're now doing new developments on. And we're going under contract on a little over 200 units in Michigan. So about, I'd say about 30, about $40 million in property. Okay. And what's the strategy that you're finding now to be most effective in order to find acquisition opportunities? So it's weird from where I started two, three and a half years ago in 2016. The market is just, it has changed astronomically, multifamily real estate. I think that because of all of the resources online and there's coaching educational programs and, and there's so much capital out there multifamily has become one of the most attractive asset classes to buy ever anywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so much money has flooded the market and, and that supply demand along with interest rates being at all time lows has driven the cap rates down and the pricing up on these types of properties and made it really hard to find good deals to buy. So just strategy wise right now, it's how do we find off-market owners who are willing to sell us their property directly where we don't have to go through the on-market call for offers, bidding process, bidding war. And how do we find, how do we get direct to the owners? So we do a lot of cold calling, direct mail and networking with brokers so that they can bring us, you know, off-market, good off-market deals that, that are quality and that we know we can make a good return on. Okay. So, After you I'll talk about a strategy that you were using up to recently. I don't know if, if you're still using it, but where you put a group of cold callers to help you contact owners. How is that going? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's going well. I started it a couple months ago. And so I've got a team of about nine or 10 people. Uh, they each have a different market. And I provide them with a list of owners and numbers, which I get from commercial real estate software that we have. And basically every week, their goal is to make, you know, 50 to 100 calls uh, to owners in their market. And then we discuss their, their leads that they find. And we've had a lot of success. We haven't bought a property yet from it, but we've made several offers and we've, we've made a couple, I think we've made a couple thousand calls and got in touch with several hundred owners of which, you know, maybe 20 to 30 have been open to selling. And, mm -hmm. you know, a couple were in the middle of negotiating prices on and stuff. So, so it's, it's been working pretty well. So yeah, a, a deal is bound to happen from a deal is bound to happen. Yeah. 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 And so the way you structured it is you found these people through Instagram, correct? Yeah. Or, all or you, you advertised what you were media. looking for. Yeah, I, I had a couple that I was friends with and knew. And then um, I just made a post on my Instagram story and said, hey, if anyone's interested, and I got like five or six more people involved from that. So yeah, basically found people through social media. And, and for them, 
I kind of give them some free coaching and guidance along the way. We do, we get on a zoom call every week, you know, they make calls, bring leads. If they find a deal that we end up closing on, I'm going to bring them in as a partner with some equity and some fees up front too. So it's a way for them to not have to put in a ton of time, let's say a full-time job or something, but, but they can get involved and get in on the ownership side of apartments by making calls. 50 calls a week that uh, that's doesn't that's i assume that wouldn't take a long time mm -hmm. yeah and two to three hours and you're providing them with the numbers of who to call yeah yeah they've got everything they just need to make the calls yeah that's so it. i mean that sounds to me like a, a it's very a <laughs> it's a good deal for for both of you right because you have yeah, for both of us. people exactly. who are making 500 calls a week for you then if yep. the deal pops up it'll, it'll be your deal so exactly yeah. yeah and then they're learning along the way and 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 you know they get to be a part of our network so um you know and and, and partake in the resources that we have so yeah yeah i thought that was extremely clever so i wanted to touch on that you talked about david how the multifamily market seems to be a little bit saturated in 2020 as opposed to when you started in 2016 how are you responding to that i think it's important to be patient we're just not simply not going to be doing as many deals as we did back then you can't buy into the hype of where the market was and where it's at now and where it could go you still got to use logic and and proper assumptions and be conservative and just because, you know, pricing's gone up, uh, you know, it's doubled in the past three to four years, almost in some spots, does not mean it's going to double in the next four years. You know, certain class of tenants can only afford a certain rental amount, right? And and let's say they're paying 700 bucks. Now that market's up to 950 to 1000. Well, you know, does it make sense that it's going to go to 1300 in the next two to three years, you know, and they have that same two to $300 rent bump? I don't know. I think you're price, you're because really at the end of the day, the values of these properties are based on the net operating income, which is based on how much money it makes and the rents. So, you know, for people where a couple of years ago, we'd buy B class apartment property in Dallas, Fort Worth for 40 to 50,000 a unit. Now they're selling for 80 to 90,000 a unit. And when people buy it at that price and now are expecting to sell it in a couple of years based on their financial models at 130,000 a unit, does that make sense? And so a lot of times I don't think it does. Yeah. And I don't think that the rents are just going to go to a place where it's going to support that along with the fact that we're seeing huge tax and insurance increases across the country because of these valuation increases. And so, yeah, it's oversaturated and you just got to be conservative and patient. There are good deals out there in any market cycle. You just have to look harder. Mm -hmm. You just have to look harder. I think that was a, a great overall assessment of where the multifamily market is today. Is that also one of the reasons why you started evolving into ground up development? 100%. When I'm seeing in Austin, Texas, B-class 1970s and 80s build apartments selling for 120 to 150,000 a unit. Mm -hmm. And I can build brand new for $135,000 a unit, all in mm -hmm. land, entitlement, everything. I'm not talking A-class, you know, 200 unit A-class product with the pools and the tennis courts. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, working class, I could build these apartments for 130,000 a door. I'm getting brand, I'm getting 30 to 40 year newer product than what other people are paying. It just makes sense to me mm -hmm. to build. 
it just makes sense. So we're building because of that reason. And we've, we've got a couple projects right now. One that's just we're ready to break ground. And another one that's we're starting the planning process for a little over 100 townhomes. So Okay. And are both of these in Austin? Not Austin proper, but they're in, in the suburbs about 20 minutes north of Austin. They're in okay. Austin Metro. Yeah. Okay. And the second one you said was a townhome development in the first one? First one is a 50-unit ground-up garden-style apartments. Okay. So you decided that you wanted to go into ground-up development. And what was the first thing you did? Yeah, the first thing is like, well, let's find a piece of land. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're the kind of people where, you know, we'll do our research, we'll analyze the market and run some numbers, but then we're ready to dive in. You know, if everything seems to make sense, we're not going to overanalyze and wait. So we bought a piece of land, we got it entitled and permit ready. Again, you're making, it, you're making the process sound so easy. It is, yeah, it, it does sound so easy that way. So the process really is look on city zoning maps and find where properties are zoned residential or high density residential. Okay. And every city has zoning maps that you could find out these areas. Now you can also take a property that's not zoned for that. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, do you want me to back up and kind of explain what zoning no, that's good. Even exactly. is? Yeah. Okay. So zoning for anyone who doesn't understand is a city's method of kind of sculpting there's the city and different areas into different property types. Mm -hmm. So, you know, most cities might have like a downtown area where they allow mixed use development, you know, some retail with some residential over it or stuff, stuff like that. And then they'll have industrial corridors or sections where they will allow the building and development of industrial buildings, warehouses. And then they'll have certain sections where it's residential neighborhoods and strip malls. And so it's all outlined. A lot of times it's color coded on a map and mm -hmm. every city's got one and they have a master plan for where they're trying to drive certain, you know, where they want their multifamily to be versus their retail versus a new shopping center or whatever it might be. So you do some research into that and look at the current land use and zoning map and then look at future land use a lot of times it'll be future land use so you could if you could find a piece of land that's not currently zoned for multifamily but maybe it is in the future plans to be zoned or it's near multifamily or it's in an area that seems like it would be a good property to put multifamily you can actually get a property rezoned and mm -hmm. you go through a process and apply with the city and say hey this is general commercial right now but we think that, you know, I want to propose that this would be a great spot for 150 or 200 unit multifamily development. Mm -hmm. And and so you go through this process, you apply, you put together a site plan, and if the city approves it, they'll rezone. And that might take a couple months to do, mm -hmm. right? And <clears throat> so you, that's kind of the early stages of the process. Yeah. And you went th through that process with, was it the city of Austin or one of its suburbs? Thankfully, not the city of Austin because they're paying. <laughs> yeah, but the it, city of Austin is, is known tough. for being very tough to get entitlements in. They absolutely are. It's the tough city to entitle entitlements. So this is in the suburbs, a uh, city called Leander, and it was already zoned okay. for multifamily. So we didn't have to rezone anything, which was easy. We just basically had to figure out at that point, you know, work with the city, fire marshal, and a civil engineer how much can we put on this property? How many units can we fit? What are the parking requirements? 
and what's the maximum square footage we can build, all that type of stuff. And so, you know, you work for a couple of weeks and get down to it and figure out, okay, we could put yeah, 60,000 square feet, which comes out to about 50 apartments, right? You've got some hallways, you've got some uh, entry areas, and then the rest of it, you know, you got some common space, and then the rest of it is rentable living space. And at that point, the city approves like a preliminary site plan. Then you work with an architect and, and they go through, and that might be a three, four, five month process, you know, depending on the project. And then you get your architectural plans made so that you can actually hand those to a builder and they can go and build it. Mm-hmm. So, How did you put together your development team in terms of like architect? How did you find the best architect to work with? I mean, at the end of the day, it was your first development project. So yeah. you may not have found the architect that you want to work with on your next one or on your sure. fifth or sixth one. But how did you go about, was it through simply references or, or how did that happen? Yeah, so we just asked for a lot of referrals. We ended up finding a civil engineer who I can't remember how I found them. That might have been either online or I saw their sign somewhere on a project. Mm-hmm. And um, really like that team. They're a great, great civil engineer firm. And they referred us to architects who referred us to okay. you know the, the MEP mechanical engineering plumbing team who referred us to the lighting people, you know, so a lot of that at that point is referrals. And then we're starting to figure out who we like, who we don't like and, and forming a team around that. But I think referrals are probably the best way to, you can always Google it too. You always go online yeah, and just search sure. architects in my area. Yeah. But I think you were lucky to find a good civil engineering team, but then once you found someone who knows the industry inside and out and who has a ton of experience, yes. then you can rely on them to turn you to the next Agreed. people to incorporate in your group. Totally. I don't have an experience yet with a bad civil engineering firm because mm-hmm. this one, they're honestly, like I don't have an experience to compare it to, but from what I can tell, these guys are, they're rock stars so far. They're super helpful. And so I would say to anyone, a good civil engineer, land planner, you know, site plan development type team, they are so important you know they should know all the people at the city planning departments and fire marshals and they know the processes for all the different cities surrounding them to to get get in and, and accomplish what you need and then you know they they really understand every piece of land is different and it might look like a plain old piece of land but you don't understand that the 200 acres behind it all drain because of the slope of the land towards your piece, which has frontage on a main road. And when you go in and start to do your development, the city's going to require that you update their drainage systems and utility mm-hmm. systems there, which might cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, you just don't know that. So you go buy a piece of random piece, a random piece of land and don't account for that. And now you got to spend an extra $300,000 on updating drainage systems. And so mm-hmm. little things like that, yeah. they've helped us avoid which I mean, civil engineers. And that's what the feasibility period is for, right? When buying a a piece of property, you normally have a period of 90 or 120 or a certain amount of days for you to work with your engineers and perform all these kinds of studies and try to uncover as much surprises as you can in this stage. Exactly, 100%. And so we, we went through that on that piece and now we're going through it on the second piece of land about 10 acres where we're, you know, our goal is to put, you know, hundred in between 100 and 200 townhomes, depending on what the city will allow. 
And so right now, you know, what, what's interesting about that deal is we don't really have to go through a feasibility period and lock it up under a contract. The owner's actually going to partner with us by contributing mm-hmm. their land as equity to our development. Okay. So that's a really unique way where you can have the time you need to figure out the feasibility of a project and then go through and get your loan lined up, get your equity lined up. You know, where, whereas a lot of times you're either you have a feasibility period and you're putting earnest money down or you've got to buy the piece of land, which is what we did in the other scenario. We just paid cash, but now we're sitting on three quarters of a million dollars into land of our cash that is not making us any money in the meantime. Yeah. So, but you're also yeah. able to contribute it as part of your equity into the deal Correct. because the bank at the end of the day is going to require you to put in what it is 30, 35%, yeah, 20, 25, 30% down. Yeah. Depending yeah. on the loan type. So yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll get it back when when we close on you know that when we close on the capital raise and everything. But but yeah, you know, yeah. there's different ways to do it. And the owner of the property for this second development is that something that he was looking to do? Did he have a property that he was looking for someone to develop and to partner with and contribute the land to? So so that was interesting. It's actually a lady who's owned it for many years and in a really high growth area. And so the value's gone up quite a bit, but they still have a, a pretty reasonable expectation for price on the land. And so I had met the son of the owner. Somebody referred him to me. He was thinking after had talking with his mother for a while that, mm-hmm. you know, instead of selling the land, let's build something on it. But they don't have the ability themselves to go and do the large development. Whereas we we have the ability to get the loan and get the you know, bring the $5 million to the table. So, you know, we sat down and met and all really liked each other and just kind of decided, hey, why don't you can just contribute your land and that million dollars is like a million dollar investment into this development project. And and we'll work kind of alongside with you and get this thing entitled and then go and build it. But we're the general partners and main sponsors mm-hmm. on the deal. So it makes the process a lot easier. We don't have to go and spend a million dollars to buy the land and then mm-hmm. a couple hundred thousand to get entitled. We just have to spend, we're going to have to spend, you know, two, $300,000 to get it fully entitled, but we saved them other million bucks. Yeah. When you say get it fully entitled, what does that mean? Does that mean zoning and what else? Yeah. So zoning, architecturals, site plan approval, basically get all of our plans ready so that we can go to the city and get our permits. Okay. And so permit, but before, you know, before entitled. permits, that would be fully entitled. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's what I would consider fully entitled is getting it up to the part, you know, where you can get the permits to start breaking ground. Okay. And yeah. is, is a, the permit process something that you do simultaneously while you're designing the architectural work and the engineering's, or do you first complete all that, get your final drawings and then start the submittal process? I guess it's not something I've really encountered yet because our other multifamily project, we've got it fully fully entitled and our permits are ready to be pulled now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our builder, the contractor, will go and pull the permits and do all that. So yeah, I'm sure there's scenarios and cities where you can do some of that simultaneously where it lines up. But for the most part, I guess from what I understand, a lot of it is they want to see your final architectural plans prior to getting your permits to build. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it probably depends on the project too. I mean, sometimes you can mm-hmm. probably start your site work before you finish your plans, right? And you can start prepping 
and then removing trees and putting curbs in and stuff like that, you might be able to do that simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on the project. It depends on the jurisdiction, the municipality, and and on your development strategy also, which a lot of times your development strategy is driven by the the capital structure, like in your case, whether you have a, a property owner that's contributing the land or if you're paying cash and things like that. Exactly. So now that you've been able to be on on the acquisition side and also on the ground up development side, what are some of the differences that you see? Because I know a lot of things transition from one to the other. A lot of things, I mean, when underwriting a deal, you can apply to from one to the other, but a lot of things are also pretty different. So tell us a little bit about those, how do they compare one and the other? Yeah, I mean, at a, at a high level, how it affects us is there's a lot more time and effort put up front into a development project. You know, part of the way where we make money in our business is profitable is with acquisitions fees and, you know, development fees and stuff like that. So until we get up to the point where the project starts, we're not making any money uh, as the sponsor. So um, development definitely is slower in that aspect. And then also you're not cash flowing from day one. You know, it takes 14 to 16 months or shorter or longer to build. And then, you know, you've got, you've got a lease up and then cash flow at that point. So you've got to account for all that in your underwriting and, and, and a lease up construction, a lease up period for your cash flowing and just take all that into account. So there are a couple differences in those ways. I think ground up development though, you know, because it allows us to get in at a lower basis with a new product, low maintenance, it's going to be a really good way for us to build a lot of long-term wealth for, for us at Obsidian and also our investors, you know, depending on where you're at in the market cycle. Yeah, exactly. Because you say that based on where the market is at today, based Correct. on what the prices 2009, are. 2009, I would, you yeah. know, there's not a lot of people building in 2010, you know, 11. So it just it depends where, where you're at in the market. Yeah. For example, right now, construction costs, I mean, essentially it comes down to the product that you're able to end up with, something that you're building brand new, is something that you would rather have than what you have than what you would have to pay for in an existing yeah. asset. I don't know if I explained exactly. that correctly or no, not. No, you're right. You might you you're gonna have to pay for a stabilized new build property that's that's already fully leased you know, 20, 25% more than what you can go and build it for. So if you're willing to take the time, you can go and build it. You're going to be in a better equity basis and have a good long-term hold there. Now, another strategy for people, you know, there are a lot of developers and builders who want to go in and build apartments or build an office space or you you do office condos, Mm -hmm. um, but they don't want to go through that or they'd prefer not to go through that year-long entitlement process where, you know, they want to have permit-ready land. So there are a lot of scenarios where they're willing to pay for that savings in time. And so you as a developer, a land developer, can go out, find a piece of land in a good location at a good basis, get it entitled, spend a little bit of money to get it entitled, get it permit-ready, and then go flip it to somebody who's going to then build it. And you make a, a profit spread there. We're also looking at in Utah in a really great market part of Utah, a land development deal where we found a great piece of land that we could subdivide and sell to builders. And we have some awesome connections there. 
that uh, that do this. And and so we're partnering on a, a land development deal out there where basically, you know, we've got a, a piece of raw land. We will get it ready to build a subdivision, subdivide the lots, sell the lots to builders, make a spread there on the lots. Same concept. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different parts of the process and uh-huh. you can make money at each at each different step. Uh, yes. Depending on what you want to do. It seems to me that a lot of the opportunities that you're creating or running into are in a way driven by relationships because you've mentioned contacts a couple of times. You've mentioned the relationships that you've been able to build. How do you do that? How do you spend time on developing those relationships? Dude, relationships are everything in business. A hundred percent of the time, all the time. Relationships are everything. And it doesn't come overnight. It's it's mm-hmm. it's time, it's effort, it's consistency in in communicating with people and showing them that you're not, you know, just around for for a little while. You're you're there for the long term and uh, you're a good person to do business with. I think acting ethically and with high integrity is super important for building relationships and trust with people. Uh, that, that's part of our philosophy. And so because we've been in business for a while and we've built a lot of good relationships, we get deals sent to us before other people do. We get first priority. We get opportunities that other people might not get. And so almost more than anything, I value relationships. That's how I've built you know, this business so far. And that's mm-hmm. how I met my current business partner. And Yeah, exactly. And I can tell from following you on Instagram, the emphasis that you place on relationships, for example, tell, tell us a little bit about the, the mastermind group, the secret X that you put together. Yeah. So I'm in a couple masterminds myself where we'll get together a couple times a year in a conference room and, and network strategize with other high level, uh, very experienced apartment owners. And so I love those groups. I've gotten so much value from them. But one of my friends and I, we thought, why don't we do this in like an exotic location? Why don't we go do this in paradise, like on a beach somewhere? So we just kind of threw a quick event together in Cabo early 2019. We had about 25 people come out and, uh, you know, we, we basically just networked and, and, and had a blast with other people in the industry. We booked a 150 foot yacht that we chilled on for the day. We had wow. a whole boutique hotel to ourselves you know, five-star service and just had a great time. And so we, we were like, let's do another one. So we did another one in Aruba end of 2019. And now we're, we're doing our third one in the Caribbean coming up here in a couple months in May of 2020. And so Secret X kind of spawned. And after the first one, we realized we're just, we're a bunch of busy entrepreneurs that plan this. And we really gave people that came no details. So they showed up and they're like, I really didn't even know where we were going because we had wow. the transportation lined up after they flew in and everything. And so we were like, huh, that's kind of cool because nobody knew what they were going to do. And, and they kind of liked that. It was all a surprise. So we called it Secret X, like secret experience. And essentially now we plan it. We, tell, we don't tell people anything. You, you, Other than the general vicinity. Of the- yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know like the hotel or standing out or anything. And really, until you get accepted, you know, you just fill out an application. And if you fit, like if you're an entrepreneur and you've got a business going, you've got some experience, you know, you can come. And then we'll tell you like where to fly into. But we take care of everything from there. We pick you up at the airport. We'll bring you to the hotel. You don't know what our plans are. You really don't know who else is coming. 
and really we, we just plan all this cool stuff to, to do while you're there. It's a blast. That's really awesome. And in the long term, that's how a lot of the opportunities indirectly are driven by, right? Yeah. So yeah, sometimes a lot of opportunities have come from that and, and from all the other groups and conferences I go to and, mm-hmm. and events and just day-to-day business talking to brokers and you know, you just build relationships and I've formed, you know, you're a young guy, you're you're 26, I'm 24. Coming out of college. I had a lot of great friends in college and, you know, we had a lot of fun in my first couple of years, but I realized that wasn't, that that wasn't a group of people that was going to accelerate me to the Mm -hmm. point where I wanted to be. So I switched up my entire circle friends to people that are where I want to be. And so a lot of my friends now are a lot older than me and are very experienced multi multi multi-millionaires in business and different areas of business. And, And we hang out. I've learned a lot from them I think they, you know, we just have fun together. And so I've changed up my circle of friends to people that are successful and ambitious and that want to do better, want to be better in every aspect of life. And I think that's one of the most important steps to being a successful entrepreneur is mm-hmm. the people you hang out with are is who you become. Yeah, completely, completely. I also wanted to ask you about, I saw... I think it was on either on Instagram or on a podcast that you did about how you went to Guatemala to build a school, right? Last yeah. year. What's that about? I, I, oh, I, dude. I was happy to see that. Yeah, that was so fun. So a, a part of my mission and purpose in life is giving back. And I think, you know, too much, you know, to who much has been given, much is expected. So I had a friend who had built a school in Africa a couple of years back. And he's like, yeah, we're going to Guatemala this year to, uh, to build a school for this village who really doesn't have, you know, they don't have enough classrooms to support all the kids in the village. So we raised as a group about, I think there's like 14 or 15 of us. We raised about $40,000. We were sponsored by this company called Build On. And we went down to Guatemala for a whole week and we built, uh, we didn't build the whole school in a week, but we built the whole foundation and then the contractors coming after and finished it. But we got to spend time with dude, these kids that were like yeah. just so cool and experience a different culture. And I get to sharpen up my Spanish a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was just a fun time. Eat what they eat, live how they live, you know, and, and, and experience what it's like to not have a lot of the things that we have and live in excess with in America, mm-hmm. you know, we're so lucky. So. Mm-hmm. It seems like a great way to balance a lot of the, I mean, it, it, it's still work going there. I mean, you're, you're going there to build a school. It's not like you're on a relaxing vacation, but it's still a great way to balance the hustle and what you're doing day in and day out in your business. Perspective, dude. I mean, it, it just shows you so much like how lucky we are here and gratitude and just flowing with gratitude that coming coming out of something like that. Mm-hmm. And for me, that, that drives a lot of what I do. I'm so grateful for what I've been able to accomplish so far for all the people that the good people that are in my life. Gratitude just drives me every day. Like I, there, there's no reason I should be sitting around and being lazy. Like I should be mm-hmm. continuing to grow and push myself and help other people and do better and be better because I mean, dude, we're lucky. We're in, I mean, we're in one of the greatest countries in the world, mm-hmm. not the greatest country. And we have a, a responsibility to give back. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And we're also living in the best time in history to be alive, right? 2020. 
Yeah, the, the, the way that we live today, when you compare it to, I mean, even 100, 200 years ago, the quality of life, it's just, I mean, we, we don't really have much to complain about. We complain because we, we compare and we focus on what we don't yeah. have. But in reality, I mean, we, we have it very, very good. Yeah, very good. You're so right, dude. I yeah. agree. So, David, are you ready for the fire round? Five quick questions to get to know you a little bit better. Sure, let's do it. Awesome. First question, what's your favorite place to travel to? So far, I think I really enjoyed uh, Aruba. I love Aruba. Aruba. Yeah. Okay. I've never been there. What about favorite movie? I love Star Wars. Star Wars. Okay. My, my Instagram name is Real Estate Jedi. Uh -huh. I grew up watching all that. So I'll just say that's the series. Is all it. Yeah, I was, I was. I wanted to ask you about the your Instagram handle, the, the Real Estate yeah. Jedi. So yeah, that <laughs> yeah. makes that makes a ton of sense. Yep. What about favorite book? Favorite book, Maintenance Man, a Millionaire. That's my business partner's new book that he just launched okay. about his journey of building a real estate company, starting as a maintenance man. Maintenance Man to Millionaire. Maintenance Man to Millionaire. Awesome. By Glenn Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. What about the best advice that you've received? I like the saying one of my mentors told me. He says, count your pennies and your dollars will count themselves. What does that mean? Count your pennies. That means focus on, you know, instead of looking just at the big picture, you know, make sure that you're on your on a construction, for example, that you're spending your dollars right on a small scale and it'll all flow up in the end and you'll you'll be on budget and you'll you'll be you know you're not going to be overspending so just count your pennies and your so focus fo themselves. focus on the details focus on the details okay yeah perfect awesome david so how can people reach you to get to know more about you or if they want to know more about obsidian capital or if they're interested in, in investing with obsidian capital which I want to invest in Obsidian based on what I've heard from this conversation. I think you're up to some very interesting things. I appreciate that, man. Would love that. Best way is uh, Instagram. You can find me at Real Estate Jedi uh, or search David Tupin. You can find me at our website, uh, which is www.obsidiancapitalco.com. Obsidian is spelled O-B-S-I-D-I-A-N. Awesome. Well, yeah. yeah, I encourage everybody to check you out on, on Instagram because you sure keep it entertaining there. <laughs> uh, so I, I appreciate that. You're keeping us updated. And thank you, David. It's been a fantastic interview. I've had a great time and we got pretty technical on some topics, but I think it was a good in-depth conversation that's going to help a lot of our audience and it's been helpful for me as well. So thank you for that. Absolutely, man. Thanks. I hope so. Hope it helps. And uh, yeah, anybody out there, feel free to hit me up. Would love to connect.